We are drawing closer to early May, to the day when in theory the quarantine is scheduled to end. I know that time has become somewhat relative to many of us as our schedules have been blown out of the water and the rhythms of daily life have been terribly interrupted. I sometimes struggle just to remember what day of the week it is, let alone what day of the month it is. One of my kids recently got up and started getting dressed in nicer clothing for church. And I said, buddy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm getting ready for church. And I said, it's Thursday, Justice. The irony of it was that it was actually Friday. I didn't even know what day it was. We were both wrong. Uh, but living in this quarantine has brought about some very interesting new challenges and trying to keep your head wrapped around time is one of them. We've known from very early on the situation that we're in is a fluid one and that reevaluation would be happening along the way. We're praying that the curve will have been sufficiently flattened so that we can begin to see a loosening of the regulations that have kept us from gathering together face to face. And if we are told that there is a true light at the end of the tunnel, then we will continue to plan what kind of changes we may need to make to ensure the safety of our congregation when we do begin to gather in place again. We will very likely have to wear masks. We're going to practice social distancing, I'm sure, for some time after we're allowed to meet again. We may need to run three services for a bit in order to keep the interactions down so we can have proper space between our families. And it may be wise to not have children's church or Sunday school for a while because germs tend to be the one thing that children are really good at sharing. So those are some things that may have to change when we come back together. If we are told, however, that it's going to be significantly longer than expected before we can meet, then we will be reevaluating our options so that we can see how we can maybe facilitate a better connection in the meantime. Zoom has been really beneficial to us. This is the um, app that makes it possible for us to meet kind of Brady Bunch style in a multi-video screen layout where we can see each other and talk to each other. That's been great, but there is something irreplaceable about face-to-face -face interactions. So some churches in California have just this past week won a large victory in the courts. The courts have established that it is permissible under the guidelines of the quarantine that Governor Newsom has put into place for churches to have drive-in services. And what that means is basically your family would come to church in a car. Um, there would be a preacher, probably live. You roll your windows down a little bit. You could hear the preaching. Or we would do some kind of a, a shortwave radio setup where you would just tune in. As you can see the preacher um, there preaching, you would listen to it on your, your radio in your car. If we did something like that, there wouldn't be any physical interaction between our members, but we could at least wave at each other, see each other's faces, and remember where the church is at. It's been so long since we have been here. So we're not exactly sure how things are going to go. We are still praying and waiting. Regardless of the course the next few weeks may take, know that we miss you and we're tired of being apart from you that we are in daily prayer over you, and that as much as we are concerned for your health and safety, we're also committed to seeing God worship the way that he deserves to be worshiped. So we are anxious to return to the true fellowship of the saints. We are anxious to return to true church. Open your Bibles with me now to Ecclesiastes 11, as we still have the word of God to preach. As we draw near to the end of Solomon's fascinating book, 
that evaluates the meaning of life here on earth, the author is going to take the next two divisions of verses to apply some wisdom first to the earliest days of man's life and then to the latter stages of his time here on earth. Today we're going to give some biblical wisdom regarding youth and how we handle our earlier days. I don't know if there's been another phrase, another phase in history where youthfulness and the playful innocence of youth has so dominated the culture of the world. For thousands of years, the crown of society was being able to live to the age of maturity, where you could say that you have seen much and gained great wisdom. The older generations, having lived longer, had often accumulated the most resources and were able to use their possessions to influence and shape the world around them. The elders of a tribe were looked to with reverence and wisdom for guidance in the ways that society was to go. They were the keepers of history and helped maintain a connection to their culture's past. But now we have seen a decided shift away from the older generations and a greater emphasis put on the relatively younger people, those who are new to the scene of life. The old long for their earlier days now. They wish they could be 21 again. As society has progressed, and I use that term loosely, as I don't know that much of the advancements we've done could be considered true progress. As society has progressed, work has become easier for us. And young people have been called upon less and less to enter into the workforce at early ages. So as our concept of what constitutes childhood has been extended, and parents have generally given more of their spending money to their kids, and now their kids have spending and buying power, that means that the economics of life have shifted. Those in marketing have discovered that if you win the attention of the young, then you could build lifelong customers, and it'll give you greater profits in the long run. As a result, there is this cultural emphasis that has been put on youth and youthfulness to the point where the vast majority wishes they could, they, they could be young again. Everything that you see on TV focuses on the young. Everybody is desiring to be young. People are getting plastic surgery to make themselves look like they are young, to convince the world that they are not yet old like those people who are past their primes. The fountain of youth a mythological tale about finding a spring that might yield a secret means of never aging or remaining eternally young is on the minds of people whether they think about the story specifically or not. But should that really be our goal? Should we be clamoring for the days of our youth? Especially when we know there are obvious pitfalls and serious character flaws that we often associate with youthfulness. <clears throat> the young are idealistic, but they are also often very naive. They often walk confidently into crisis because they trust their wisdom and skills will bring them through. Wisdom and skills that maybe they don't even have yet. There is often a sense of entitlement. We often see self-centeredness defining the younger generations of the world. Not all, but we often see this in a person who has not lived long enough to learn to have compassion on those who are different than themselves. Along with a feeling that the older generations are out of touch and are not worth being listened to. And how many sinful temptations are especially problematic for the young 
who can often make a slew of mistakes without having to pay dire prices for their actions. Not other, nobody else is really depending upon them, so there's more lateral room for them to mess up, to make a mistake, because it doesn't cause the demise of a family as a, a father or a mother would if they were to choose the path of destruction. The world and each culture in it will have their own opinions about things. But for those who follow Jesus Christ, God's flawless, eternal word is what ultimately must shape our attitudes and understanding of the world around us. And so we will turn our attention to Solomon and listen to what God has to say about the days of our youth. We will study what he has revealed to us through his servant in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 7 this morning. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Let's bow our heads together in a word of prayer as we ask God to direct our learning this morning that it might be worshipful to Him and beneficial to us. Lord God Almighty, who sits upon his perfect throne, we bow to you today in worship, grateful that though we cannot be where we want to be, that you are wherever we are. You do not change, Lord God. You are immutable, and we can trust in you to maintain your perfection and your holiness and all of the good qualities that make you so different and unique from us. Those things will never change. We, however, are captive to time. And as we travel through space and as we travel through time, we're hardly the same person a week ago today than we were a week ago, God. I praise you that though we change and shift and develop and grow and sometimes even regress, God, that you are always who you are. So let our focus be not on necessarily ourselves, but let us gaze upon the beauty of your perfection, which cannot be shaken. I pray, God, that you would help us as we think about life. Help us to get beyond the sun. Help us to think beyond the parameters of our mortal, temporary existence here. And let us think heavenward. Mortality must play into our understanding of age. We are faced with it right now, Lord God. Please do your will through this pandemic. Bring about your perfect plan. You will do good through this. And in the meantime, give us perseverance Give us patience and endurance to deal with the inconveniences, Lord God, and help our hearts be set on one another. Also looking out for the brothers and sisters who are in Christ that we might help to meet one another's needs in this time of of difficulty. Show us your mercy, Lord God, and grace in ways that it will draw us closer to you and especially to your son, Jesus Christ, by whose sacrifice and resurrection we have access to you. We praise you, Lord God. And we lift up these words through our high priest Jesus. Amen. Coming out of a section in chapter 11 where we are encouraged to engage in the labor of life, even though we cannot guarantee the outcomes of our effort, 
Solomon sets the stage for the next set of verses by assuring us that life, with all of its unanswered questions and frustrations, life is still good. It is still worth living. Verse 7 again says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Time is measured by the movement of the sun. So to see the sun make another appearance over the eastern skyline means that your journey through life on earth continues. Each new sunrise means that God has allowed you to live another day. He has showed you the favor of existence. So the sun is described here as a welcome sight, a blessing to the eyes. In verse 7, the preacher uses two positive adjectives to describe the happy assessment of life. He says that life and the vision of sun that signifies life is sweet. Now in the Hebrew, this is mafok, and it means enjoyable, received well by the senses. When we see the sun, it brings happiness to us. We are blessed by it. We will see soon that life is not always sweet, but often it is. So much so that most people desire life. They have a thirst for it. They fight for life. They treasure it. It is good in that we enjoy it. But that is not the only positive word that Solomon uses to describe life. The ESV says that looking upon the sun is also pleasant for the eyes. And, and I, although I love the ESV translation, I think this is an unfortunate choice of words. Because <coughs> the word that is used there in the Hebrew is not as passive as the word pleasant. Tob is the word in the Hebrew that is used in this passage, is most often translated simply as good. Now, this can be used in a, quantitative, a qualitative sense, such as, this is some good coffee, or it will be very good when we can gather together again as a church. But it is very often used even to carry a moral sense of judgment. Something that is tob is very often something that is acceptable to God. In Genesis, when God speaks and the heavens and the earth spring into existence, when the words of God bring forth life, plants and animals spring forth, when God forms Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from his rib and breathes lungs into those human beings, they live. When he forms Eve, when he brings Eve to Adam and they enjoy one another's company, God evaluates his creation. He looks upon all that he has spoken into existence. And what does he say of his creation? He calls it something. He calls it tob. He uses this same word here. He calls it good. In Genesis 2, as God establishes order and enters into covenant with Adam and Eve, he describes the one tree that they are not to eat of as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here the word tob is used again as a contrast to that which is wicked and against the will of God. Tob is good morally. It is, it is something that pleases the Lord. So life is both sweet and good. And the two are not mutually exclusive. Some view life as though you can only have one or the other of these two things. They act as though life will either be sweet meaning lived according to the desires of man's flesh, lived according to the senses, lived for one's own pleasure and according to one's own rules and sense of what is right and wrong. You can have the sweet life or 
your life will be good. It will be lived according to the will of God, complying to His authority and honoring His commandments. But in order to get that kind of life, you've got to give up the pleasures of existence. Friends, can life be sweet if you are determined to live in a way that coincides to God's declaration of what is told, what is good? When you bow the knee to God and trust Him as King, are you trading the precious sweetness of this life for the promise of something better to come? By no means. In fact, the opposite is true. If you seek life's sweetness apart from God, you're putting yourself on a never-ending quest of futility. The path that you choose when you choose to go away from God is a path marked by moments of temporary fleeting pleasure, flashes of sweetness. But the prospect of true satisfaction will elude you over and over again. There is no true joy apart from the presence of God. But in Him, in God, there is fullness of joy. I hope you sang this morning along with the songs that we prepared. They are the songs that we would have sung if we were to have gathered together today. And the very first song on our set list was Psalm 16, which is based off of the biblical song and proclaims in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no true joy apart from God, but in Him there is a fullness of joy. There is a full and actual realization of what it means to enjoy the life that God has brought us into. So here is the general principle that Solomon's driving at. All the observations that Solomon has made through Ecclesiastes, while these observations are very humbling to us, they do not have to ruin our enjoyment of life. Someone who comments on the book of Ecclesiastes and said, this is the book that really, that really humbles us to the point where we see there is no real joy in life, doesn't really understand the book. Ecclesiastes is not meant to be a condemning diatribe of existential loneliness and despair. Solomon is saying, enjoy life. Be grateful for life as it has been given to you by God, even though you don't fully understand it even though your human logic can't make sense of it all, even though you can't look down the corridor of time and know exactly how things will turn out, trust in God and enjoy the life that He chooses to give to you. If your view of God has been influenced by the jaded perspective of the lost world, then you may have to rethink your understanding of who He really is, who created you. I remember a boy who lived in our neighborhood when I was a little kid and he had a, a, a really bad reputation because of a gruesome hobby he had. He loved to be mean to animals. He liked to pull the wings off of flies. He liked to catch lizards and put them in the freezer and freeze them alive. He would, he would lure a cat over with sweet words and then when the cat got close enough, he would grab it and throw it in the air as far as he could to see if it would land on its feet. I'm sure many of us have seen kids do these cruel things. It reveals an unspoken attitude that all these things exist for my entertainment. Some people get a kick out of the suffering 
of lesser beings. But friends, understand, God is not like that. God does not take joy in your suffering. He does not desire the condemnation and the destruction of the wicked. He has not designed us just to watch us squirm for his own entertainment. How many times in this book of Ecclesiastes has Solomon paused his philosophical journey to remind us that it is okay to enjoy life? In chapter 2, verse 24, we're told to eat, drink, and be merry. In chapter 3, 13, eat and drink and take pleasure in your labors. 5, 18 says, find enjoyment with your toils. <coughs> in chapter 8, verse 15, it says, eat, drink, and be joyful. In chapter 9, verse 9, it tells us to enjoy the wife of our youth. Our spouse should be a joy to us. Chapter 9, verse 7, eat, drink, and be joyful. And then a caveat is added there, which is what we're really going to focus on here this morning. Eat, drink, and be joyful if God has approved of what you do. And here we may remember echoes of chapter 2, verse 25, which says, For apart from Him, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Enjoyment and true joy is in the palm of of God's hand. It is not something for us to take hold of apart from Him. And as we reach the conclusion of the matter of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, this will be the sum total. Yes, life is frustrating, and we lack understanding of all that goes on here under the sun. But in view of that fact that God is not only sovereign, but is also good and loving and holy, and pure, then our solution is to reach out and trust Him and follow the lead that He has set for us. So there is a call to enjoy your days, but it hinges on whether or not you are following the lead of God by faith. If you are a believer listening to this this morning, if your sins were crushed by Christ at the cross, then do not feel bad about enjoying life. Do not feel guilty when you eat a meal and it's delicious to your taste buds. Do not feel bad when, when you feel the, the tingle of love for another individual. Do not feel bad when you are blessed and you get a windfall of resources. Do not feel bad when you just take a break from the busyness of life to enjoy a sunset. If you were a slave to sin, but now you've been set free by Christ, then do not feel like you are somehow more pleasing to God if you minimize and make yourself miserable to prove that you love God more than you love the world. That's not true holiness. In fact, it can be works salvation in reverse. This week we're hearing Solomon encourage us to enjoy however much life God chooses to give to us. And this certainly applies to the younger years of life, especially to the days of our youth. I want to camp out here for a moment in verse 9 because Solomon gives some advice that might come across as contradictory. And so I want to clear up this controversy a bit. Verse 9, he said, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Why, friends, is Solomon telling you and telling the young 
to walk in the ways of their hearts and in the sight of their eyes. What has Scripture taught us about the heart? We know that the heart is corrupt. The Scripture speaks about the human heart in vastly different ways than our humanistic society does. We know that the heart is corrupt and corruptible. We know that it sees what it wants to see <coughs> instead of seeing what is there. Because all of us have followed in the footsteps of the first man, our federal head, Adam, who sinned and broke the covenant of works that God had invited him and Eve into. Because he broke God's law, everyone who followed after him has walked in the same pattern of brokenness. And it is not an external problem only. It is an internal problem, a problem of the very essence of our being. Look at the words of Numbers 15, verse 39 through 40. And this is, this is um, Moses describing some facets of the priestly ministry. He says, It shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Now that means that our heart and our eyes tend to make us into unfaithful prostitutes who go after the things of the flesh rather than the things of the Lord, rather than the holy things of heaven. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. A very stern warning against trusting in the ways of the heart and the sight of the eyes here. There is a natural fickleness to man's heart. We trust our natural heart to our own peril, friends. For it is unreliable. And it runs after whatever catches its attention in the moment. Our hearts will lead us into danger and destruction, chasing the flimsy possibilities of pleasure and fulfillment. Job shares a similar sentiment in chapter 31 as he's giving one last defense of his innocence before the Lord God. He says, If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, then let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. This is the attitude of a man who desires to be righteous. He says, if I have fallen into the natural trap of what my heart tends to do to me, then I deserve judgment. God, please, please bring it upon my life. The dangers of the heart are echoed in the New Testament. In God's word, clearly, we see warning after warning that the temptations of sin are especially strong and dangerous in the days of our youth. In our call to worship passage this morning, the Apostle Paul urges his young friend Timothy to flee from his desires. Listen to those words again in verse 22 of chapter 2. So flee youthful passes, uh, passions and pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. From a pure heart. And this is part of the key to understanding 
what Solomon means in these verses here in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. The word is so strongly cautious against our hearts that some commentators decide that Solomon must be giving this instruction ironically. In other words, he's speaking to the one who ignores God and he says essentially, go ahead, follow your heart, follow the the desires of your eyes, but you're going to get judged in the end. Now, I can't really embrace that interpretation of what's being said here specifically in the latter half of chapter 11 for two reasons. First of all, why would Solomon describe enjoyment of life as tob, as good, acceptable to God in one breath, and then in the very next breath turn around and suggest that only the reprobate will enjoy this life? I don't think that Solomon would do that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Secondly, we have several other places in this very book that I've mentioned already where Solomon urges us to find joy in the simple processes of life that is lived under the sun. So how can we walk well in the ways of our heart and in the sight of our eyes and still be pleasing to God? By staying acutely aware of the fullness of joy that comes only when we say amen to the supreme reign of God on high. The enjoyable things of the world before we are reconciled to God are at best best a fleeting distraction from our inevitable destruction. If we don't have God, then finding joy in the little things of life can only delay the inevitable destruction that lays before us. At worst, they are a constant competition clamoring to keep our eyes off of the one thing that can truly satisfy us, God's Savior, Jesus Christ, whom He sent to redeem His precious people. So enjoy life, but do not bother with the vain experiment of seeking that joy apart from God or by means that He does not approve of. Joy can only truly be found in the context of redemption that God has provided for His people. Ecclesiastes 11.9 Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Everything that you do is seen by Him. Because God is a good judge, He will take care of everything that you have done wrong, either by condemning you if you are not in Christ, to pay the just penalty for what you have earned or he'll take care of it on the cross. His wrath will be poured out on the Son, Jesus Christ, and justice will be done. Verse 9 literally refers to the judgment. It doesn't just say judgment there. There's an article. It indicates a specific important event rather than the general judicial activity of God. There will be a final judgment, friends. So put every desire under that judgment preemptively. If God is not pleased by something you desire to do, then you should not be pleased by it either. Walk away from that pleasure and let God replace it with greater love for Him, with a desire for something that is holy, something that is compatible with His will, something that honors His reign over us. What is our one hope for salvation through this judgment that is to come? To be taken out of Adam and put into Christ. There is such a beautiful escape in Jesus. I'm so sad for those people who live in this world constantly seeking an escape from the reality of their 
sinfulness before the Lord God, but doing it in the wrong ways. <coughs> they mask their despair and their inability to cope with life's difficulties by taking drugs, by drowning their sorrows in alcohol, by, by seeking the fleeting pleasures of sexuality that doesn't match the designs of God, by hoarding for themselves resources that become like artificial little temporary gods in their lives that are one by one replaced by the next shiny God. These are all self-deceptive means of easing the pain of life. But in Christ, friends, we have a true sanctuary. When we come to understand the weight of our sin and then understand the humbling reality that not one of us can work our way out of the pit that we have dug. We have nowhere to look but up. We have no one to appeal to but God, our judge, the one who deserves to cast us away and would be just to do that very thing. And yet when we call out to him and we pray for his help and we see the solution he has provided, we see that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. Jesus is not a created being. He was not an angel. He was God himself who came down to be with us, to take on the mantle of humanity and to walk through the same pitfalls that we walk through, but at every turn and every juncture to deny the temptations of the flesh. Christ fulfilled the law by living perfectly. His track record was absolutely spotless. And this Jesus whom God sent did so so that he might go to a cross, a criminal's punishment, and take the condemnation that we had earned from God and he put it on his own shoulders. Everyone who will ever trust in Christ has had the full weight of their sin punished upon the body of the God-man Jesus Christ. This is the one sanctuary into which we may run and be saved. Those who have trusted in Jesus by faith have been justified. They have been declared righteous by God now. The whole record of wrongs that they had committed against God have been expunged because the penalty for them has been paid in full by the suffering of Jesus Christ the Savior. But God did not just erase your bad. Instead, at the cross, He also chose to take the righteousness of His Son and to credit to you that righteousness. He has imputed a holiness and a purity into you. He has given to you a different heart. A heart that can love the right things. A heart that has an eye for what is good and what is holy. And though our vision for what is good is not perfect, friends, Christians still sin. Christians still stumble and fall. The changes that Christ has wrought about in us are leading to our daily sanctification. That we are becoming more and more like Christ. By sanctification, the things that used to not appeal to our flesh, the holy things of God, now appeal to us. We begin to want to do the things that God has commanded us to do in His Word. As He builds us up in discipleship and as He shines His light upon us as a sun that brings light, life now has new parameters. It has new goals and aims. We don't just live for ourselves. We don't just live to escape from the pain of life, but we live for the glory of the one who has saved us gloriously. Tempering our affections, turning our attention away from temporary worldly things and towards God. 1 John 2 verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, he loves the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so we see here in 1 John a very clear black and white picture that our joy cannot be rooted in the things of this passing world, but it must be rooted in God himself. And when Christ is the object of our affection, when he is our love and our desire and our pursuit, then the things in the world are no longer our idols and they can properly give us happiness. They can properly be enjoyed because we don't put them where they don't belong. Young person, he or, or she who walks in the, the, the early dawn of life, do you pray about your desires? Do you pray that God would show you the right things to love? Do you pray that he would teach you how to enjoy life in a way that is honorable, that is glorifying to God, that he would be your guide? So often we pray for things and we pray for our desires to be met, but do you get on your knees and say, God, teach me how to love rightly? As a broken person who is headed to hell, who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, I will only know the way, God, if you show it to me. Teach me how to love better. Teach me what to want. Put into me a desire for things that are lasting. Replace those desires that I used to have, those desires for these fleeting things of the world. Do you pray for that from your God? Plead with him in this, that he would help you to see the difference between what is truly enjoyable and what is nothing more than a worldly counterfeit of joy. As God answers that prayer, he will direct you back to his word by which he, we can test everything in life. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 21 says, Rejoice always. See, people, we are called to joy. We are commanded to be a joyful people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Friends, this is, this is what a young person needs to hear. That this life, though frustrating, this life, though it comes with so many mysteries that are sometimes impossible for us to unravel, that we can have the direction of God's guiding hand if only we will go to his word and test everything according to what he said is good. He himself is good. And he would not tell us to do anything that is not holy and good. So test everything. Abstain from what is evil. Reject it if it doesn't match the word of God. And if it matches the word of God, then find your joy there. I love what Derek Kidner, biblical commentary uh, said on this, he said, insisting that our ways matter to God and are therefore meaningful through and through robs joy of nothing but its hollowness. Joy was created to dance with goodness, not alone. You see what, what Derek is saying there? He's, he's saying that when God tells us and teaches us 
that our actions, every, everything we desire, everything we go after has meaning. And he cares about what you want. He cares about where you're going. He cares about what you do. He's helping us to see that, that, that true joy comes when we wed the truth with love. When we, when we have this, this wonderful balance of goodness that is guided by the wisdom and truth of God. Solomon doesn't let us take this wisdom the wrong way, though. He's not going to let us distort his truth. And so, though we can enjoy the simple pleasantries of life under the sun, the joy they bring will be buffeted. And he shares with us three serious cautions, three pushbacks against this idea that, that some people grab onto, that maybe life is all about being happy all the time. No, Solomon is going to ground us. He's going to give us an anchor here. He helps us to understand this command to enjoy life by delivering these three precautions. First of all, along with the bright days, we will experience our share of darknesses. This is evident in verse 8 of chapter 11. Trusting God alone undoes the wickedness of our heart and makes a righteous man or woman out of a sinful rebel but it does not remove us from the creation which is intrinsically infected and crippled by the wages of our sin. We still live here in a broken world. And this creation has not itself been cleansed. Though believers have been washed by the blood of Christ, Jesus didn't die on the cross for the world. He died for his elect. He didn't die for the trees. He didn't die for the environment. He didn't die for this creation because he intends to remake it. And so our enjoyment of life does not have to depend upon the quality of the circumstances that we encounter. For our joy is based on something bigger and more lasting than that. It is based on the sovereign reign of a God who is always good, whose will is always accomplishing its perfect purposes, and whose shepherding will never fail to bring us to where we need to be. Though the the creation that we live in still groans under the weight of sin and tries to hinder the joy that God has in store for us, it will not be this way forever. So the second warning that tempers our attitude towards joy is this. Everything that we do will be brought under the perfect judgment of God. Everything. Grace, in all of its beauty, does not expunge us from all responsibility. It doesn't mean that we can just run around now like children of grace that are free to do whatever they want without any kind of consequence whatsoever. Romans 8.1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I say amen to that. But there will be an accounting and we will stand and face every sin that Jesus suffered for on our behalf. When we come before the throne of God, we will be called innocent. But that innocence was bought with a price. And so as we walk as redeemed, renewed individuals, we should have no desire to heap suffering on our Savior by continuing to walk in the ways of wickedness because every sin we do has a just punishment and that punishment is rendered unto the Son. Our desire should be holiness. It should be goodness. Not so that we might earn our salvation, but because Christ has earned it already. He has, his tears were shed for us along with his blood. 
2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, meaning that everything in the darkness will be brought into the light. God will render perfect judgment and call everything by its real name. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, says verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that doesn't mean we can't taste righteousness here today. It doesn't mean that we don't strive for righteousness now. We, we do. But we also keep in mind that every deed will be brought into submission to God. Grace produces love in its recipient. It doesn't produce more rebellion. So enjoy life while you are young, but do so in a way that is respectful to the one who redeemed that life and gives instructions to his redeemed on how to live in a way that they will reflect the image of God properly in their testimony, in their walk, in their faithfulness. The third caution is so important that Solomon uses it twice in the course of these four verses here at the end of chapter 11. As you enjoy life under the sun, remember that all of our time here is vanity. And we have heard that word before, haven't we? All of our time here is vanity. <coughs> now I want to call to your remembrance the range of meaning that is captured in the Hebrew word that our English Bibles translate here, usually as vanity. The original Hebrew word is literally vapor, something that seems to have substance but fades away over time. That word doesn't have to imply meaninglessness. In fact, here it is pointing to the fact that life on earth is not meaningless, but it is transitional. We are constantly changing and moving towards something different. Life here on earth is not the ends. It is the means by which God brings us to his perfect ends. This life is the way to where we are going. It is not our destination. So we must not treat this life as our home, but rather as a pathway to our true home. The English term vanity implies without meaning. But life is only meaningless if you ignore its true meaning. If you turn your face away from the reality that we were made for the glory of God. That is the meaning of life. That all things that he makes might resound in praise and honor to his perfect and beautiful name. We enjoy him as we accept him for what he is rather than trying to make him what he is not. And so to be sure, life will have its dark moments. For some, the events of last month and a half that we've been living through have been full of dark moments. We know that. We're praying and lifting you up regularly that God might shine light through the difficulties we're experiencing right now. But these dark moments need not crush us if God is who he says he is. Specifically to those who are in their younger years, Solomon offers this consolation. He says in verse 10, Remove vexation from your heart 
and put away pain. That word, by the way, literally means evil. Put away evil and the hurt that it causes from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vapor. They are vanity. In other words, they are passing away. We must do combat against the vexation and pain that would steal away our joy and and happiness. The world's strategy for combating vexation and pain so often boils down to this sad strategy. Just don't care so much. Just don't care. Just barrel after your desires while disregarding your concerns about the future. Don't care about the future. Just get that little tingle of good right now and maybe that's enough to get you through the moment. Don't care about how your decisions, though they might bring you that little tingle of joy, don't care about how it affects everybody around you. Don't care about how it impacts your society. Think about you. Don't care about everybody else. Just get through the moment. That is the strategy of survival for so much of the world. Don't think of humanity as a high and and, and godly creation that reflects the image of God. Just think about who you are right now and what you want to do with your time in the moment. That is the world's strategy. But we cannot and we must not, church, take the same approach. We will face vexation. We will face heartache and pain. But to think like the world thinks is to do such damage to our hearts that we are sacrificing truth and love for the sake of personal relief. It is a cripple and twisted love that only cares for itself or that cares for its own interests above the interests of all others. That is a broken love. It is not the love of God. God didn't need to make us at all. He was perfect in and of himself. And yet his love is one that expresses outward. He wants to bring others into the umbrella of care and love that he can give. And so he creates. And so he redeems when his creation runs away from him. He makes a way back to himself. And he calls people who are running and kicking and screaming into a right relationship with him by the blood of the lamb. We cannot take the same approach to the world in battling vexation and pain. We cannot. There is only one place that we can effectively cast our vexation and pain away from ourselves, and that is to cast it upon Jesus Christ, our Savior. To believe that the cross is what God has declared it to be. It is the solution to our sin. And not only to our sin, it is the solution to the suffering we experience from others' sins. When we see that God has overcome, when He has promised us greater life, life eternal that is not overshadowed by the constant threat of death, when we see that God has offered to us an eternity with Him, then the power that life has to break us down and to vex us is wiped away. Death has no more sting when we see ourselves in Christ Jesus by His grace. The realities of Jesus vanquish the vanity of life. There is no value, by the way, friends, in suffering just for suffering's sake. In other words, if you can eliminate pain, this is part of what Solomon is saying right here, by all means, if there's a way out of suffering and pain in this life while still remaining godly and within his will, then by all means do it. And that is why again and again and again, Jesus heals those who are afflicted by pain. 
and sickness and heartache. He cares for their suffering. He weeps for their difficult condition. That is why the Apostle Paul, in writing to his protege Timothy, acknowledges that he has a stomach condition. He says, don't just drink water only, but take a little bit of wine as well. Ease that pain that is going on in your body because there's nothing necessarily noble about suffering. And so we shouldn't desire to be constantly chafed and constantly uh, devoid of joys, thinking that this somehow pleases God. No, God wants some joy for us. It's not the only thing he wants for us. It's not the most important thing he wants for us. He wants holiness for us. He wants us near to him. But God knows full well that that is how joy flows out in our lives when we come to the source of joy and are bound to him in Christ. One of the greatest vexations is living as if this is all there is. When life is only whatever enjoyment that you can squeeze out of your short amount of time here on earth, then you are living in a perpetually diminishing state of loss. Think about it. If life on earth is everything, it is as if your existence is all tied up in a bucket full of water that has a hole in the bottom of it. This bucket is constantly leaking out. The time that you see as your only chance for joy and fulfillment is constantly eluding you. And you have no way of knowing exactly how big the hole is or how quickly the water will seep out. But you are trying to enjoy the contents of that bucket as it gradually slips away from you. How can, you, how can that not produce in you despair and vexation and anxiety in the hearts of man if that is the way that you live? The one who is young, whose bucket is mostly full right now, may feel as though they can worry about life's brevity later. They see the line of water high in their life. And, and so when they get closer to the end of the bucket, that's when they'll really start to deal with things in their mind. But the reality looms ominously over them. And any serious thought about life will hunt them with the reality that they are indeed mortal until they have come to terms with the giver of life, to he who fills the bucket. But for those who are in Christ, there is a completely different understanding of life. There is a 100% different view of how we exist. <coughs> how can we walk in the ways of our heart and not dishonor? Numbers 30, or 15, 39. Let the Lord revive the state of your heart. Trust in him that he can overcome the hardness of heart that is natural in you. Rejoice as he takes you out of Adam by his special calling and puts you into Christ. And know that from this point forward, if you belong to him, then your joys are being redefined by the goodness of his perfect word. Proverbs 4, 20 through 23 says, My son, be attentive to my words and incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. So let us pray that God would create in us a new heart.
a clean heart, a heart that we can follow without reservation because that heart is directed towards the things of God. The heart that is bowed to God not only rejoices in the light of the sun, but as Matthew 13, 43 records the words of Jesus, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Almighty God, we praise you for there is no other source of joy that can compare to you. And so many of the things that you have given as generous gifts to us, Lord God, can put a smile on our face, but none of them compare to you. Oh, how adept we are at fashioning idols, false inferior gods that we bow before. God, banish that desire from our hearts and give us a great yearning for you and you alone. I pray, Lord God, that even in our youngest years, that we would not delay in seeing this riddle unraveled before us, that we would see the truth that only you possess life and that it is only in the Son, Jesus Christ, that we can experience lasting and secure joy. Father, I pray that as we look next week at the latter stages of life, you will show us that, that he or she who comes to the cross of Christ in faith can walk not only in the youth of their lives with joy, but can enjoy every moment of their existence knowing that it is lived to the glorification of the Lord God who made us. So do your will in your people, Lord God. And until we can gather back together, preserve us in the sanctuary of your Son, Jesus Christ. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.